0: I love to hear the chatter of a happy church, does my heart good, so I'm glad you're here this morning, are you glad to be here? Amen. Let me start with a question for you, how many of you like to do jigsaw puzzles? Now I've heard it's a sign of IQ, so let me ask again, how many of you like to do jigsaw puzzles? Yeah, that's what I thought. Very good. They're actually, uh, for a time, they were quite popular in our home when the children were there. I actually, myself, don't particularly enjoy them. (laughs) It's a true confession. So I didn't say uh, which way they went in terms of IQ. You'll remember that, (laughs) right? So you can kind of resolve that on your own. But uh, yeah, when the kids were home, Thanksgiving time was always jigsaw puzzle time at our house, set up a coffee table, and, and throughout the day... People would walk by and put a piece into the puzzle. And you know, of course, uh, all jigsaw puzzle builders know, even those that aren't don't particularly like it, that there's a process that you go through, right? I mean, you you dump them all out of the box, and the first thing is to turn them all over so that the color side is showing. And then you kind of group them in stacks by color, and you look for the corner pieces, right? You put the corner pieces in place, and you look for all the edge pieces, and you work them in until you get the outline of the puzzle and then of course you're looking at the box and looking at the colors and you're you know trying to put them in place and that's the process of building a jigsaw puzzle and uh, that relates to our study of the scriptures really because our study of the scriptures is that kind of slow and methodical process of putting the pieces together there's a big picture that God is communicating to us and as As the scriptures unfold, beginning in Genesis and running all the way to Revelation, it takes all of that for the entire picture to come into focus, for all the pieces of the puzzle to be accounted for and put into place. But even though we have Genesis to Revelation, and thus we have all the pieces, it still takes a fair bit of work to figure out where they all go together. And so this morning's text before us, and we're in Matthew chapter 11 again, and so I'd turn you there, ask you to turn there. As we uh, come back to this text, we are in the process of putting together uh, some of those more difficult pieces. We looked at that last time, and we're going to be looking again uh, this time. So this is another one of those thinking cap sermons, and uh, they're good for us. It helps us to get the full and grand sweep of biblical revelation but it does require us to think it requires us to align up the pieces properly and to and to stick them into place so we're putting together a, a puzzle and the question we're asking ourselves this morning is why did Israel reject her messiah why did she reject her messiah it seems to us so clear on the other side of it in reading the narrative and so forth, the gospel accounts, that it's, it's absolutely plain as the nose on your face, and so how could they possibly have missed it? And indeed, it was plain as the nose on their face, and they shouldn't have missed it, but they did. And Matthew wants to help us in, this, uh, in his gospel, really, answer that question. If Jesus is the Messiah, then, then why didn't Israel believe? That's sort of the underlying theme that runs entirely through this gospel and chapter 11 helps answer that question and the basic answer from chapter 11 is that Israel did not believe in the Messiah because he was not the one whom they were looking for they had their own idea of what a Messiah would be and he didn't match up to what they were looking for and thus they did not recognize him. Let me read the text for you. We're beginning in chapter 11 and verse 2. Now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came, eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax-gatherers and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. There are three questions here in in these verses, 2 through 19, three questions that arise uh, that because of Israel's misunderstanding of the Messiah. And we're using these three questions as kind of our outline to look at this particular passage. We looked at the first question together last week, and it was simply this in verses 2 to 6. Is Jesus the one? That was the first question that was being asked. Is Jesus the one? Matthew records the question for us, and he records it on the lips of John the Baptist. It is John the Baptist who voices this question Is Jesus the One? And we noted last time that this is, a, this is really kind of a shocking question to, to be voiced by John the Baptist, one who had uh, earlier baptized Jesus and initiated his public ministry, one that had been going about preaching, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But now, John is having trouble putting the pieces together. Things haven't worked out the way John expected them to work out. His prophetic ministry had been one to, to confront Israel in her sin and to call her to repent and prepare their heart to receive the kingdom of God. And he had confronted those in authority, and uh, both civil authority and religious authority, with this unwavering message. And his expectation was... And a biblical expectation, it is that that following this time of judgment, and you'll remember in Matthew 3, he spoke about the judgment to come, following this time of judgment would come the glorious days of the kingdom of God. So this was his message, this was his expectation. But now he finds himself in a very difficult situation. He had been imprisoned by Herod Antipas, he had been sitting in in his dungeons now for a year or more, and things weren't really working out. Instead of judgment coming upon the wicked, it seemed as though the wicked were prospering, the wicked were triumphing. Herod Antipas himself, who who John had confronted in his unlawful marriage, had now imprisoned John, and so the, the Messiah's forerunner has been thrown into prison. That doesn't sound like the coming kingdom. Beyond that... The, the people uh, were ignoring the message. The, the leadership of the nation had, was turning a deaf ear to the message. And then the, the, the one whose presence he was heralding was acting in ways that, from John's point of view, were rather peculiar. Rather out of character for his understanding of what Messiah came to, to do. Here's Jesus. He's, he's moving around the countryside. He, he's violating the religious taboos of Judaism, of which John was a very strict adherent. And yet Jesus, you know, he doesn't wash before he eats. He, ceremonially, that is, he, he's uh, one who uh, doesn't practice fasting, his disciples don't fast. All of these things were very important to John as a, as a very uh, um, dedicated Jewish man, and yet Jesus seems to be violating these religious taboos in every direction. John also was one who did not enter into the, the feasting of the day. John was, a, was an ascetic. John was a, was a guy who was single-minded and focused on the coming kingdom and the judgment that would precede it. And if your message all the time is judgment, you're not much interested in going to a barbecue. And so John didn't partake of such things. But Jesus did. Jesus actually, and this is, this is the shocking thing, Jesus not only uh, didn't fast the way John and his disciples did, but Jesus participated in feasts, and he participated in feasts with the most irreligious people of society would be found eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners, that is, people who had defiled themselves and were now outside of acceptable Judaism. And yet Jesus is very comfortable moving in and around them and preaching to them. John can't put it together. He can't put it together. He is discouraged. He is confused. And so he sends his disciples to ask because it doesn't compute and his faith is beginning to waver. And he sends his disciples to ask, Are you the expected one, verse 3, or shall we look for another? Are you the one to come? Are you the messianic king? Are, Are you the greater son of David? Or are you, like me, merely another forerunner before the future one? Well, how does Jesus respond to him? Jesus responds to John by simply pointing John back to the word of God. That's what we noted last time. Is that Jesus speaks to him, uh, to his disciples, that is John's disciples, and says, tell John the things... That, that you have observed, the blind are receiving sight, the, the lame walk, the, deaf, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the gospel is being preached to the poor. Remind him of these things and specifically by, by Jesus speaking this way, he's saying, remind John of the prophecies of Isaiah. Go back into Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah chapter 35 in particular, and you will see these things were predicted of Messiah. And John, that's all you need. That's all you need. Go to the Word of God. Look to the Word of God. Use the Word of God to evaluate what your senses are telling you, and you will arrive at the truth. You'll arrive at the truth. Jesus gives to John and John's disciples the theological framework by which they can interpret the evidence that is all around them and arrive at the proper conclusion. John, you are to weigh the miracles against the prophecies of Messiah's kingdom blessing and do not waver in your faith, verse 6. That takes us to the second question. By the way, that was all last week's sermon in a whole lot less time. I get better at it as I practice. That takes us to the second question. And the second question is... Who is John? Who is John? Is Jesus the one now? Who is John? As these men were going away, verse 7, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. Jesus sends John's disciples on their way. Go back to John in prison and point him to the word of God, remind him of what's going on, and that will resolve his crisis of faith. But it's important at this point for the crowd to have a proper understanding of who John is. They must not misunderstand John. Any any doubt that may have arisen on their part with regard to who John is must be taken away. Because the ministry of John and the ministry of Jesus are so closely intertwined that to misunderstand John, to doubt John in his ministry, would ultimately be to doubt Messiah himself. And so now Jesus, beginning in verse 7 and running all the way through through verse 15, um, enters into a defense of his forerunner, John the Baptist. He explains who John is. And by understanding John and his ministry you will understand Messiah and his. Now, one of, the, one of the ways to teach effectively, and people will tell you this all the time, is to ask questions. Questions is, is an effective means of teaching. And the reason questions are an effective means of teaching is because it, it causes people to ponder and to, and to process and to arrive at conclusions. So rather than just being told all the answers, they sort of derive the answers themselves. And so questioning is an effective teaching technique. And that's exactly what Jesus begins to do here, is he begins to ask questions, rhetorical questions, questions that he doesn't expect them to vocalize an answer to. He expects them to, to answer it you know, internally in their mind, and by that process he will draw them along. And so he asks a series of three rhetorical questions, beginning here in the second part of verse 7. The first two questions are kind of sarcastic, which is uh, properly used, another effective teaching technique, a little bit of sarcasm. And so Jesus uses a little bit of it here uh, to, uh, to rebuke their faulty thinking. And then in the third question, uh, which expects, uh, and the first two questions expect negative answers. The third question expects a positive answer. Jesus vocalizes that for them and then uses that answer as the springboard to resolve the bigger question at hand, and that is, who is John? So let's see how he does it. Let's look at his first question in, in verse 7. He says to the crowds here, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Think. What did you go out there for? Who did you go out there for? A reed shaken by the wind? A reed shaken by the wind. The picture here is, you know, is of, a, of a reed down by the, the river. And as the wind comes, the reed just sort of bends and, and sways in the, in the wind. It goes every which way. It's a, it's a picture of a weak and vacillating person. And so Jesus says, "When did you go out into the wilderness to see? Did you go to see a weak and vacillating guy? Is that what you went out to see? Now, the obvious answer to that is no. Absolutely not. That, if anything could characterize John the Baptist, it would, it would not be weak and vacillating. Right Matthew tells us in, in chapter three, verses seven and eight, when he that is John saw many of the Pharisees and, and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, "You brood of vipers, right? You like you, um, you group of snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance." Now, now that's not the way a weak and vacillating person speaks when they confront power and authority, OK? Uh, So John is anything but weak and vacillating. He's just the opposite. Jesus gives him another. Verse 8, rhetorical question. But but what did you go out to see? If it wasn't a weak and vacillating person, did you go out to see a man dressed in soft clothing? Did you go out to see a man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. The picture here is, is of weakness. The, the picture here is of softness. The picture is of someone who has been raised in the lap of luxury. You know, uh, when I was a, a boy, my mother talked about people born with a silver spoon in their mouth. And that's kind of the idea. I know you've got to be as old as me to make anything sense of that. But. But the idea is that people who are born in privilege and have never worked a hard day in their life, they don't know what it means to work hard. They've they've been dressed in just fancy clothes the whole time and they have a bevy of servants to do everything they need to be done. Those are the kind of people who live in king's palaces. Is that John? Is that that the John you went out to see? Again, John is anything but soft, right? He's anything but weak and vacillating. He's anything but soft. Matthew told us in chapter 3, verse 4, that now John himself, his garment was camel hair. And he had a leather belt, big old leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. That is not the clothing and, and diet of someone who lives in the palace. This is, again, the exact opposite. The exact opposite. So, so John is not weak and vacillating. John is not a, you know, a pretty boy raised in the in lap of luxury. John is a very austere man. He's a very strong man. He's a very uh, fearless man. And he's a bit weird. Okay? So that's the third question then. Nine, but what did you go out to see? If you didn't go out to see these things, what, what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. All right, we need to think here a little bit. The last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. When Malachi put his pen down, figuratively speaking, God stopped speaking. He is the last of the Old Testament prophets. When Malachi finished, prophecy ended. Prophecy ended. The nation had now been without direct communication from their God for over 400 years. 400 years since they've heard from God. A lot has happened in 400 years. By the way, 400 years just so you know you have a reference point. Uh, the Pilgrims landed at uh, at Plymouth Rock in 1620. That's that's uh, 400 years ago. Okay, it's been 400 years since the people of God have heard from God. He has been quiet all of that time. During that 400 years, and, and we call it the intertestamental period. It's the it's the period of history. A lot happened between the close of Malachi and the opening of Matthew. And in fact, what happened on the world scene are the last two kingdoms of Nebuchadnezzar's statue. You remember? Nebuchadnezzar's vision of the great statue of the gold and the silver and the bronze and the iron, right? Well, the gold and the silver occurred during the Old Testament prophecy period. But the, but the, the bronze and the iron portions of the statue, representing the empires of Greece and Rome, were still distant. Well, during this 400 years, the the bronze has come and gone. Greece has come and gone. Alexander the Great has come and conquered the world and created the largest empire the world had ever known, and it's been swept aside. And then in his place has come the ironed, hobnailed uh, sandals of the Roman legions who have forged an even bigger empire than Alexander. And the Jews find themselves now under the the authority of the Roman Empire. And yet God has been quiet through it all. Now knowing Daniel's uh, the book of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar's prophecy in there, there's a certain uh, expectation that would arise in people's hearts and minds. Prophecies come true. I mean, just like Daniel said, here we are now. With Rome over us. And we know that now what is going to happen is that there's going to be a stone cut without hands. And it's going to smash this idol. And it's going to, it's going to become a mountain and fill the whole earth. And Messiah's kingdom is going to be established. And so for the faithful among Israel, they are, they are looking for the consolation of Israel, we're told in Luke. They're expecting it to happen. And then boom, out of nowhere, out of the wilderness, after 400 years, comes this enigmatic guy, John the Baptist. He, his, the prophecies about him from before he were, was born speak of him as the forerunner. He comes onto the scene and, and his testimony is, is like that of Elijah who went before. And, and so is his dress. And he is, he is quickly recognized by the nation as, as a prophet. This strange fellow with, with, with bizarre ways and, and an uncompromising message. And the people pour out to him. They pour out to him. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. It's not just that, that God had now begun to speak, that, that God's prophetic voice was once again being heard in the nation. As amazing as that is, it is Jesus says that it is, that it is a prophet like unto no other prophet who had ever come before. The greatest prophet ever known the last of the Old Testament prophets. And Jesus says about him that he is the greatest of the prophets. And he provides three reasons why that's true. Three reasons why John is the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And here they are. First, because John is forerunner To Messiah and his kingdom. That's verses 10 and 11 and verse 13. John is forerunner to Messiah and his kingdom. That makes him the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. This is the one, verse 10, about whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Verse 13, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Now Jesus' citation here in verse 10 The Old Testament text of Malachi 3 and verse 1 plunges us into the mystery of Elijah, the mystery of Elijah. Malachi, the last of the Old Testament prophets, had written that there was one coming, a coming one. Not Messiah, but but one to precede Messiah and whose, whose role it would be to prepare the nation for the great and terrible day of the Lord to get ready for the coming day of the Lord, a time of of severe judgment upon the world. Because after this great day of the Lord, in would be ushered Messiah's kingdom and and worldwide peace. And Malachi, in chapter 3 and verses 1 through 4, he speaks of this coming one. And Jesus says, John's the one. John is that one. John is the one who is the fulfillment of the Malachi prophecy, verse 10. This is the one about whom it is written. He is the one who will prepare the way before you. Well, if he is the one who, who fulfills the Malachi 3, the one who prepares the way before the king, that makes him the greatest of the prophets. For all other prophets spoke of the coming king, John points to the coming king. And beyond that, it is is important to understand who John really is in order to understand who Jesus really is. Don't lose sight of the fact the apologetic for John is ultimately an apologetic for Jesus. If John is who Jesus says he is, then Jesus is Messiah. John is the greatest prophet ever to be born because he fulfills the Malachi prophecy. But interestingly, here in verse 11, Jesus says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Huh. The greatest, the greatest born of women, verse 11 right? No one greater has arisen. The greatest of the Old Testament prophets, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What is he talking about? What is he talking about? How can he say this one who is the greatest is less than the, the, the least in the kingdom of heaven? Here's the answer. John is only pointing to the kingdom. He is pointing to the king. He is saying it's at hand. It's here. It's ready to come. Look. Get ready for it. But he who is least in the kingdom is in the kingdom. In the kingdom. He has entered into that blessed age that the prophets long foretold. And so it's a, it's a relative balance of, of where you fall in redemptive history. And John is the high point of that old covenant. But even at the high point of the old covenant, it doesn't compare to one who has entered into the the kingdom. Now, John will enter the kingdom, but not then. Right? We find out later that John is actually executed, he's actually executed. So it's a comparison. It's a comparison of the the high point of those who point to the coming kingdom with those who are least in the coming kingdom. And on that basis, uh, John is inferior to those who enter in. Second reason Jesus gives us here for John being the greatest of the Old Testament prophets is in verse 12. And it's because John's John preached a message that was violently opposed by Israel's leadership. John preached a message that was violently opposed by Israel's leadership. Now this is an interesting and rather enigmatic kind of statement here in verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. What in the world does that mean? Well think with me about a prophet Violent opposition to the message of repentance was the, the, the lot in life of the Old Testament prophet, right? Your Old Testament prophets, did not most of them did not die of old age in peaceful retirement communities. Most of them died violently by the very people of God to whom they had been sent to preach a message of repentance and to draw them back to the living God. So there there should be every expectation that if John is in the long line of prophets and is indeed the greatest of the prophets, that the violent opposition that that his predecessors had experienced, he himself would feel, and that's exactly what's true. The sad legacy of the nation and its leaders has always been they opposed the prophets of God, and it's no different here. John, and his message experienced the same violent opposition that all the prophets of God had experienced. Now verse 12, let's let's sort it out here for a minute. And uh, let me just say at the beginning that verse 12 is one of those uh, notoriously difficult verses grammatically in the Greek. And there are all kinds of ideas about what's going on here. And you can, you can sort of boil it all down into one of two basic interpretations. Either it's a positive statement that Jesus is making in verse 12 about the kingdom of God, or it is a negative statement that Jesus is making about the kingdom of God. And it depends how you translate the verb in this verse. I'm not going to say any more about that than that. If you're interested in the translation of Greek verbs between passives and middles, uh, if you even know what that means, then you can uh, delve into the literature yourself. But for now, let me just tell you that it basically falls down to, depending on how you translate the verb, and the verb form is identical. So it's context that determines. It's either a positive statement or a negative statement. The New International Version, the NIV, translators have adopted a translation that makes it a positive statement. and So they translate it as follows. The kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. The kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. The basic idea is that the kingdom of God is pushing back the darkness. It is forcefully advancing. And now is the time for forceful and courageous men to take hold of it. And if, if, if you understand the verb in that way, then that's the positive statement that Jesus is saying. He's saying now's the time to grab hold of the kingdom and, and press into it. Remember earlier in Matthew 3, <coughs> excuse me, not 3, in Matthew 7, Jesus says that, that the way is narrow and the gate is, is small and few find it. And so uh, people link these things together and they say that the idea here is that it's now is a time to push your way into the kingdom. There's another approach. The other approach sees this as a negative statement. <coughs> this is the approach taken by the translators of the New American Standard, English Standard, King James, and others. And this sees Jesus' statement here as a negative meaning, a negative meaning, and, a, and a basically a negative meaning, essentially along these lines: the kingdom of heaven is the recipient of violence inflicted upon it by violent men with evil intentions. The kingdom of heaven is is receiving; it is the recipient of recipient of violence inflicted on it by violent men with evil intentions. So it's, it's either positive, it's pushing back the darkness, you need to push your way in, or it's negative in that it is being oppressed and put down by violent men who intend to do injury to it. <coughs> Excuse me, one other piece of the puzzle, verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, it's just a Semitic expression that, that basically means Uh, from the time of the activity of John the Baptist. So from the time John the Baptist began his baptizing ministry until now, one of two things is happening. Either the kingdom is advancing and it's time for you to get on the bus, or the kingdom of heaven is suffering all kinds of violence and people are trying to oppress it. I think that that is the better understanding of the verb. That Jesus is not making a statement of positive nature about the kingdom of God. He's actually saying that the kingdom of God is is being uh, dealt violence by violent men. It is the negative statement. And here's my reasoning. When John began to preach his message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the leadership of Israel did not come out and all get baptized, right, and say, wow, we're we glad you're here. We've been looking for 400 years. Where well, you've been. Just the opposite. They, they are pushing back on him. And they are opposing him, and John criticizes them. He calls them a, a, a group of vipers, right? So there's a sense in which the, the leadership is opposing John. And that opposition against John eventuates in John's arrest uh, arrest. The, the religious leadership does not stand up for John. They allow Herod to arrest him. Furthermore, it will galvanize into outward opposition to the Messiah whom John has come to proclaim. And so, even though it may look like things are going in the good direction, actually things are going in the absolutely wrong direction vis-a-vis the nation of Israel. The leaders of Israel are violent men, and they are attempting to, to violently seize the kingdom for themselves. That is, they are attempting to muscle Messiah out of the way so that they can retain their own positions of privilege and status and authority and define things the way they want them to be defined. John chapter 1. Go ahead and turn here. John 1. I think it says John 11 probably on your slide. And uh, it's unfortunate when all your mistakes are... uh, Broadcast. Oh actually I'm sorry it is John Eleven. It is John Eleven. Not John One. John Eleven. And our wonderful sound and video guys will fix all of that prior stuff. Probably have to buy him a cup of coffee though, won't I? Oh well. John eleven, sorry. John eleven. This is after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and uh, how do people respond to that? How's the leadership respond to the raising of Lazarus from the dead? They're not overjoyed, right? Verse forty seven. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convene a council, and they're saying, "What are we doing?" For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They will take away our position of authority and they'll take away the temple. So we cannot let this guy go on. Verse 53, so from that day on they plan together to do what? Kill him. Kill him. in Matthew chapter 3 Kind of wearing this text out but it's it's so important John's baptizing here. He says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Verse 10, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree. Therefore, every every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John is in no way saying to them, you're doing a good job. He's saying to them that, listen, you are about to be swept away in judgment. You go over to Matthew 21. This is where Jesus is now in the temple during the Passion Week, and he is engaged in the most intense hand to hand verbal combat. Is that an oxymoron? Hand to hand verbal combat? Probably is, isn't it? Verbal combat just doesn't sound strong enough, you know? Deadly verbal combat. That's better. They're involved in deadly verbal combat here, and it's, and it's over a question of authority. Jesus has cleansed the temple. They want to know, by what authority do you do these things? And so Jesus says to them, uh, verse 24, I will also tell you one thing, which, i uh, ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will tell you by what authority I do these things. You want to know why I do it? Answer this question for me. Verse 25, the baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? Where did John come from? You tell me where John came from, I'll tell you where I came from. And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? See, they refused John. But if we say from men, he, we, uh, we fear the people, for they regard him as a prophet. So they answered and said, I don't know, we don't know. I don't know where he came from. They were actively opposed to John. They were violently opposed to John. They were opposed to John. They're opposed to John's message. And they're opposed to the one whom John is pointing to and saying, This is the one. Verse 38, same chapter. Jesus tells the parable here of the landowner, right? This is the landowner who has the vineyard. And, and uh, he rents it out to some vine growers. And he wants to collect his, uh, his share of the produce when it comes in. And he sends his, the slaves. And they beat some. They kill others and so forth. And then he says, uh, I know what I'll do. I'll send my son. They will respect him. Verse 38. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. Let us kill him and seize his inheritance. Verse 45: When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. They knew who he was, there was no confusion. They wanted to kill the son and seize the vineyard, they wanted to kill the Messiah and seize the kingdom for themselves. Chapter 23, verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow uh, those who are entering in to go in. Basically what he's saying is woe to you, because you shut it off. You will not enter in yourselves, and you are preventing others from entering in. You are violently opposed to the kingdom of God. And you are seeking to seize it for yourselves. Back to chapter 11. Jesus says, John is the the last and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Why? Because he's forerunner to Messiah and his kingdom. Secondly, because the message of John was so violently opposed by Israel's Leadership. Third, because John came in the spirit and power of Elijah. John came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And hang on now with me. We've got one more piece to the puzzle we've got to stick in place. Verses 14 and 15. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This again draws us back into Malachi's prophecy. It takes us back actually to the end of Malachi's prophecy. Chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. The final words of the final prophet of the final book of the Old Testament. Behold. I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. For 400 years, for 400 years, the godly among the people of Israel have been longing for the coming of Elijah. The coming of Elijah. Because they rightly understand that when Elijah comes, the kingdom is right behind him. Right behind him. And they were right. They were correct in understanding that. Elijah must come. Elijah must come and precede the kingdom. That understanding of Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 and 6 that that it is Malachi who comes first is absolutely correct. And you can see this. If I turn you to Matthew chapter 17, I want to show you that. Matthew 17, this is the transfiguration account. What's going on here in Matthew 17 is is the disciples are are discouraged. They're they're growing fearful. Jesus is starting to talk about being crucified. And at this moment in time, in in order to bolster them in their faith, Jesus gives them a glimpse of himself and his coming messianic glory a picture of the coming kingdom and he does it to just three of them right he takes his inner three up onto the mountain and he as it were peels back his flesh and reveals his glory to them and when he's on the mountain there there appear to to them they see speaking with jesus two old testament figures you remember who they are well if you don't we'll read it Verse 2, he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His garments became as white as light. And behold, check it out. Pay attention. Don't miss it. Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Moses and Elijah appear talking with Jesus. Elijah precedes the kingdom. The glimpse of Christ in his kingdom glory includes a glimpse of Elisha and Moses. And Jesus says back here in Matthew 11, if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elisha who was to come. Now that... That brings us into what's called contingency. Contingency. That means if certain things happen, this will happen. And if they don't happen, it won't happen. And this is a very interesting thing. I think it's it's fascinating. Because the angel Gabriel told Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, prior to his conception, that he, that is John the Baptist, would serve in an Elijah-like capacity. Luke chapter 1 verse 17. He says it is he. This is the angel Gabriel says. It is he who will go as a forerunner. Before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. To turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. This is exactly what Malachi had predicted. And the disobedient to the attitude of righteous. So as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So the angel Gabriel tells Zechariah Before John is even conceived. This is who he will be. Yet. When Israel's leaders uh, come to question John while he's baptizing right out at the Jordan River. uh, And they say, are you Elijah? John chapter 1 verse 21. He says, I am not. I am not Elijah. I am John, son of Zacharias. Well, who are you? They say. And he says, I am a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make ready the way of the Lord. John identifies himself with the voice of prophecy of Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. But he doesn't claim to be Elijah. And yet Jesus says, and I'll take you to Matthew 17. Beginning in verse 9. So this is right after the transfiguration. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, Well, well why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Fascinating. Fascinating. John is Elijah. John's not Elijah. John could be Elijah. John wasn't Elijah. How do you you make sense of that? The answer is contingency. It's contingency. If the nation had repented, if the nation had humbled their heart and embraced the message of John the Baptist in his Elijah-like ministry, then the kingdom would have come. Messiah's kingdom would have come. But because they did not, because they hardened their heart, because they refused him and thus refused the one to whom he pointed... The offer of the kingdom was snatched away from them. It was postponed. It was delayed. And this is where it gets really cool, I think. According to Revelation chapter 11, I'm not going to turn you there, but Revelation chapter 11, verses 5 and 6, in the time of the tribulation, there are two witnesses. Two witnesses. And when when you read about them in their ministry, you cannot help but think about Moses and Elijah, the coming ones. And so it's not that Elijah, and there's some difference of opinion here, I don't think Elijah physically comes again in the two witnesses. I think it's another prophet with the spirit of Elijah who proclaims the coming Messiah. Now that, my friends, is a lot to chew on. A lot to chew on. So, what do we do with it? Let me, let me just take two, three minutes here and see if I can give you something to go home with other than a headache. <laughs> Jesus offered the kingdom to Israel. It was a full and legitimate offer of the messianic kingdom to Israel, and she refused it. She refused it. She, she turned it down, it wasn't what she wanted. It didn't come with the, with the right bells and whistles for her. It required her repentance, and she refused to repent. And yet it was God's sovereign plan. It was part of God's sovereign plan. And that included this long period of time in which the church now lives. Thousands of years in which Gentiles come pouring in. But there is coming another day when the kingdom will be reoffered to the nation during the times of the tribulation and she will repent and receive it then. But this takes us to, uh, to this interesting place of, of human responsibility. Uh, you know, I, I'm hesitant to use the word free will, but, but human will and divine sovereignty. And they exist side by side. And to try to, to, to fit one on top of the other is to, is to lessen or cheapen or even destroy one or the other. They exist in tension. And they exist right here with the nation of Israel. She was called to repent and receive the Lord Jesus Christ and she refused. And it was God's sovereign plan for her to refuse. A lot of people have trouble with the whole issue of a call to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and God sovereignly predestining those who will believe, right? And they say, how do those things work together? And my answer is, I don't know. They work together in the same way that it works here. If you can explain this to me, then you can explain that to me. The Apostle Paul takes up the issue in Romans chapters 9 and 10. In Romans chapter 9, the issue is, why not Israel? And in Romans chapter 9, Paul says it's because God, as the potter, has a right over the clay to sovereignly choose who he will choose. And he did not choose her. And then chapter 10 says, but Israel refused to embrace the Messiah because of her own stubborn heart. So which is it? Yes. (laughs) It's yes. That's what it is. One more thing, and I'm going to close this down. I'm going to take you to the end of chapter 11. We'll come back to it here in a little while and pull it apart in more detail, but just look at chapter 25 to the end of the chapter. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. God has hidden things. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. That is a statement of sovereignty. Verse 28, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Sovereignty and human responsibility side by side in the same gospel invitation. I make that gospel invitation to you now this morning. Jesus stands with his arms open and says, Come, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Don't get your mind all twisted up around sovereignty. You leave sovereignty to the sovereign one. You repent of your sins and you come and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and he will save you. Today is the day of salvation. Do not miss it. Do not miss it. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that the scriptures are so amazing. They reveal the mind of God. There is a depth to your word, our Father, that is beyond our understanding. And yet, our Father, you make things clear enough for even the simple-minded. Even those who are, who are young and immature can understand enough of the gospel to be saved. And yet there is a depth and there is a riches to the gospel that allows the sharpest of minds to probe it and yet never arrive at the bottom. Or it is the scriptures that reveal you, our Father. Or you are beyond human understanding and yet you condescend to speak to us in baby talk as it were. Enough for us to know how to be in fellowship with you. I pray, Lord, that your word would do its work today. That your spirit would cause it to penetrate the human heart that you would extend yourself to save the lost. And I pray in Jesus' name.